This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You can purchase the full episode individually or support the podcast to get all of our episodes. Review your options at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some guys who at one point said I'm doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 79 is something like, what is the relationship between one thing and many things? For this discussion, we read the extant fragments of Heraclitus, guided by the 2011 book, The Logos of Heraclitus, the first philosopher of the West on its most interesting term by Eva Brand. You can join the discussion, get the text, and read loads of supplemental material at www.partiallyexaminedlife.com. I'm Dylan Casey in Annapolis, Maryland. This is Mark Lintonmeyer in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Wes Alwyn in Boston, Massachusetts. And Eva Brand in Annapolis, Maryland. Welcome. 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 Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. It was a pleasure to read your book. That's a nice way to start. <laughs> I'm glad. I really like getting a face full of that St. John's magic that the, it's like I'm witnessing <laughs> firsthand what Dylan and Wes have only told me about, about exactly how far into, you know, I feel even us saying welcome to you that you're going to do an etymological analysis and, and it's going to be well <laughs> slash come and that's going to be you know what am I, what are we really saying there and, <laughs> and here i thought it was pure rationality it turns out to be magic <laughs> do we want to go through the rules or not no let's just talk about the h man First, why we didn't read a book by Heraclitus, <laughs> because there is no book by Heraclitus. Yes. yes. It has not survived. It isn't that it didn't survive. We don't even know if there was a book. It may have been some sort of collection, and it's referred to it at what point as a kind of collection or composition. But whether it actually amounted to a book, we don't know. In fact, it's not clear just how much of it there was. I'm convinced that we have the most important parts of some aspects of what he wrote. It seems like his kind of dense, aphoristic style. If it were a book, it'd be interesting to see what that looked like. It'd be hard to sustain that as a longer narrative. It would look like a book by Nietzsche, you know, which are you know, like aphorism. Exactly. I was just thinking, yeah. But I'm sure there were not that many, because there's some reason to think that, in fact, as far as the Logos fragments are concerned, we have most of them, the ones that deal with the Logos. But he seems to have been the inventor of this way of writing, that is to say, of writing in short, pregnant, fragmentary-seeming sentences. Of course, he didn't write fragments. He wrote, I think, whole sentences. Some of them have come down to us as fragments. Yes, number nine, debate. <laughs> <laughs> okay. As opposed to someone like Parmenides, who wrote poetry. Who wrote a poem. Yeah. And there, too, of course, we haven't got it all, but we've got the major part of maybe even all of the first part, which was more interesting. Mm -hmm. The second part dealt with current astronomy and physics. Mm -hmm. The first part was his philosophy, and I think we have most of that. Just to set him in time, Heraclitus was 500? 510 yeah. is one date that's existed. Yes. No, I'm sorry. Heraclitus earlier, 540. Parmenides, 510. Yeah, so 100, 150 years before Socrates. Yeah. Well, there's a platonic dialogue in which Parmenides comes to Athens and talks to Socrates. Well, I guess I should yeah. say, yeah. say before Socrates died. Before Socrates died. <laughs> yeah. And Socrates is a boy, a kid, really, mm -hmm. in that conversation. That's what makes it so interesting. Yeah. And Parmenides 
treats them very, very nicely. <laughs> like a tutor. Yeah, yeah. I suppose. Um, yeah, I don't know if they know what a tutor is. So. We call ourselves tutors because we want to avoid, we don't want to call ourselves professors because we don't think of ourselves as dispensing authoritative wisdom and pouring it over the students. So the word tutor means guardian, right? And that seems to fit what we hope to be doing, which is to guard their learning and to incite it. I think Heraclitus would approve, right? <laughs> so it's not clear to me that Heraclitus approved much of anything. Right. But I, I think if he had a preference, it would be for a tutor would, over, yeah. a pro- over a professor. Yeah. Someone who professes as such might be objectionable. Yeah. Yeah. No, professor, he wouldn't have liked. In fact, he's got some fragments in which he really wades into what he calls people of much learning. Yes. He says don't yes. have much wisdom. Okay. One place to start with is pointing out Heraclitus' reputation is as the fire and flux guy. There are lots of fragments that are sort of in the consciousness of everything is fire, everything is flux. You can't step into the same river twice. All those are Heraclitus. Fire is true and flux is false. That's in your book. Yeah, that's in my book. Yeah. I don't know. When I think of Heraclitus, I think of oxen are happy when they find bitter vetches to eat. That's the first one that comes to mind. <laughs> That's the one you'd pick, Mark, to, to, to write your book on? <laughs> Most of us get to know Heraclitus through Plato and Aristotle, right? That's yeah. really our first encounter with him, and we get right. somewhat corrupted. Each of them has an agenda, and they use him for their purposes there. Yeah. So that's part of where the flux thing comes from. Yes, that's where the flux comes from. And sayings that I evidently, that he never said, like, you can't step into the same river twice. He thinks you can't step into the same river once when it comes to that. <laughs> and here's what seems to me a real misunderstanding. And I have a huge respect for Aristotle. But I think as far as Heraclitus was concerned, he just didn't get it. He's not the only one. But these people who reported on him a generation or two after he died, they thought that he had something to do with making harmony out of opposites. But it seems to me that he had no interest in harmony whatsoever. He was for head-on contradiction and strife and stress and war. And he thinks that that's what makes the world alive. Being againstness is what he's for, and not reconciliation. I think you use the metaphor of the two wrestlers who are yeah, yeah. in a stasis, but they're pushing against each other. Despite that antagonism, there's also something synthetic going on, right? The world is in some sense being unified through this process. It's a synthesis, which is not a melding into each other or a reconciliation with each other, but it's the synthesis of two Opposites that abut on each other and doing so prop each other up. That's where the wrestlers are a really good picture. You know, they stand up because they're falling into each other. And I think that that's really what Heraclitus thought held the world together. I think modern readers are going to have trouble even with the idea that we are looking for a slogan or a central image or something to characterize the world in general. Is the world harmony? Is the world strife? that they want to know, well, what specifically does that mean? Are you looking at, we could give a Darwinist picture of fundamentally all the parts of nature are struggling against each other, and that's what makes it a unified system, or how would that even make sense if you're talking about physics? Yeah, well, there are some partial answers to that. For instance, Heraclitus 
is deeply interested in the force of tension, what it means to be in tension with each other. Where is the tension located? Is it in the terms of the tension and was at the ends or is it in the middle somewhere? That's a way, I think, of being in opposition and held together by opposition. He's interested in what it is that goes through everything, that is to say, that's present everywhere in such a way as to make all things comparable. And he thinks that's fire. He thinks that there's a kind of fundamental matter, but it's not a material matter that underlies all physical beings and that makes it possible. That's the reason why physical beings have number relations to each other. In other words, it's why they're measurable. It's a number of things like that that make him be a philosopher of oppositions. Yeah, I think as Mark is pointing out, a lot of listeners will come to this confused and say, well, what is Heraclitus doing? What kind of question is he trying to answer? Is it metaphysical? Is it epistemological? Is it physics? And in a way, it's all of those things, right? Although it's, yeah, you know, it's he's, right. he's looking for some fundamental unified theory of the cosmos, this fundamental cosmological principle, but it will have a kind of explanatory power that really transcends these distinctions between metaphysics and physics and epistemology. And we'll, we'll see some of that as we get further into the discussion. That seems to me right. I think this is a question, or rather an understanding that he would have agreed to, that he's interested in whether rationality, the ability to answer to mathematical formulas, is imminent or comes from the outside. That is to say, whether the logos, the ratio relation that obtains between kinds of matter, between times and powers, whether those are inbuilt and right in the matter itself, or whether they come from the outside and are beyond it. I think a modern physicist might be interested in this. In other words, does my ability to give a mathematical account of the world, does that come from some extra physical character that the world has, or is it right in the natural beings of the world? And if it is in them, where can I find it? Because by looking at it, you certainly can't find it. I always thought that that was a place where the physicist, as pure physicist, would stop. That scientific laws just describe regularities, and you don't ask, where does the scientific law come from? You might ask, is there some underlying feature that's causing this particular regularity? But in terms of just what makes things law-like in general, well, that's just taken as a methodological given, that if they were chaotic, then there would be no point in doing science to analyze them. And wow, we found that mathematical models seem to represent all these complicated physical phenomena. So that's just one of the paradigmatic assumptions that the scientist is proceeding on and yeah. not inquiring into itself. But they are looking for mechanisms, right? So a part of what particle physics is doing is trying to explain regularities in terms of lower level forces, including, interestingly, because of its relevance here to Heraclitus, forces of attraction and repulsion. So it's not that you just establish a regularity and then you can't go any further. There's some mechanism that you can find beneath that. And often that depends on these kinds of part-whole relations. And yeah. And what does beneath mean in that case? In other words, does it mean... In some way, governing the phenomena you're observing from the outside, or does it mean arising from within the phenomena that you're looking at? This makes me think of someone like Leibniz, where he has his whole world is turned, but 
in the end, it's turned from the outside. Anything that ends up being deterministic, those physicists end up having to have some beginning starting point. Even Aristotle, in some respects, you have the prime mover that somehow so it manages to have one foot in and one foot out all the time. It's never from within. It's a crank that's turned on the outside. The modern take on it is more that we will always look for an imminent structural, right? Just the example that Wes was giving, the lower level means the next smallest particles composing what you're talking about. Yeah, it's with, it's myriological. It's part-whole relationships. Mm -hmm. And you're looking for it within in the sense of one particle breaking down into other particles, for instance, with properties that determine the overall property of the larger particle. That means you're always dealing with emergent properties going upwards, and then it's turtles all the way down as far as the elements are concerned. Does that seem the case? Is this saying that we need a logos to save us from that? First of all, I think you'd understand the argument that you've given. That is, I have the sense, though how do I really know? I'm just guessing that he would be able to follow an argument of that sort. But then he would ask, look, the level in which I'm at is the level in which Physical substances, physical beings have number relations to each other. And those are transformational relations. In other words, they turn into each other according to certain numerical values. Where exactly in the pieces I'm looking at do I find the numbers? Do I impose them on nature? Does nature contain them? Or does some principle of rationality impose them from beyond. I think he had his own opinion. He thought that what he called the logos was a principle that imposed from beyond the capability for things in nature to have mathematical relations to each other. But I think he'd understand the argument that that's not right, that there is no principle beyond that imposes relations, but that it's somehow internal then he'd like to know what it is internally that makes that possible. And he actually has an answer to that. He thinks it comes on the one hand from the outside, from the logos. But on the other hand, every part of nature, whether those are substances or time relations, has a fiery basis. And fire is an analytical element which allows the natures in which it underlies to be numerically understood, that is to say, to have mathematical character. Of course, as you know, the Pythagoreans faced the same question, and they thought that the answer was simply that nature was numbers and geometry, that is, not contained them or could be analyzed according to them, but really actually was numerical. What I'm trying to say is that I think Heraclitus would have understood the problem, but I also think he had an answer. But don't you ultimately conclude in the book that his answer is to say that the Logos is transcendent and imminent? Yes, that's really what I meant to be saying. It's the transcendent Logos, and it's the imminent fire, and the Logos and the fire have similar characteristics. Fire is analytic, breaks things up. You know, the etymology of the word, Analysis is breaking things up. Well, fire does that, and it's transformative, so that the world is one through transformations, one through many. So would his response to the argument that the organizing principle is imminent be something like, in order for that 
imminence to have force or be impactful, there has to be that transcendent element and that we're just not seeing it? Or is he making a sly move here and kind of co-opting and saying, well, my transcendence is imminent? What an answer to the question is that one could say he waffles. I don't think he waffles. He means to be ambivalent here, that there is a visible element, namely fire, but there is an invisible element that is not specific, but that is absolutely universal, that has fiery characteristics. Namely, it has the characteristic of imposing a rational character on different parts of nature. So I think he'd say the question you ask is one on which I mean to be paradoxical. I mean to be ambivalent. And the reason I mean to be that way is because that's the way the world actually is. He wants to put the logos behind everything or above everything, and then allow the logoi, that is to say the individual ratios, because after all, that's important to him, that logos means both ratio and speech and principle. So there's the super logos, that's a principle, a philosophical basis, and then there are the logoi, which are the ratios, the mathematical relations that he thinks govern all of nature. So it's logos outside and it's logoi inside. Can we throw out really what the word logos means and why? So in this book, you've made the case that really from now on in philosophy, we shouldn't feel the need to translate logos because logos has some important ambiguities that we should just preserve. We already are familiar with the term from all the kinds of uh, ologies, pretty much any kind of science. So it has to do with knowledge, right? It has to be with, I'm giving an account of something, even an explanation is logos, but it's also ratio is the Latin word for it. So all those rationality, all that stuff having to do with human mind is all logos. Folks might know that it also just stands for word and it's used in the Christian tradition as, you know, the word capital W, which right. is the meaning behind thing. And, and the way Heraclitus is using it is in that direction in, if you were just talking about not just the meaning of what somebody says, but the meaning in the world, the force that drives right. it to be the way it is, the underlying pattern. Yeah, and I think this first fragment that you begin with, Eva, in your book, the listening not to me, but to the logos, right. that's a good starting point for us to get at what it yeah. means. Well, it could be a saying to begin with, it's something that's being spoken or said, and then we get further associations from that. I think what you say is a good beginning. It turns up for Heraclitus first as a distinction between what I personally say and what it is I express in what I say, namely, not my speech, but what it is that I've heard, because in my intellect, he himself uses that word in great news, what it is that I heard there that I now translate into Greek and speak in ordinary words. And he's saying, it's not what I say, it's what was said to me. And what was said to me was said by the Logos. And the reason that Logos is so apt a term for him is, well, its most original meaning is to collect. In fact, you can hear that in the English word, which comes from the etymologically same word in Latin. So what the Logos does, first of all, is bring things together. But then in ordinary Greek, it means not only speaking, not only words, not only sentences, but it also means thinking. And as thinking, it's analytic. So on the one hand, it collects, and on the other hand, it analyzes. 
brisk sentences that we have, to be able to express, I think, the way he himself thought. Namely, he heard things that were truths, not arguments. He's not much interested. He doesn't argue. He sets out things. He brings forth things. But he also was understood that's not me talking. That's the word of words or the thought of thought talking. We sort of address this in, for instance, in our Frege episode, we talked about Frege has sort of an ontology of thoughts and thoughts of what propositions refer to. But the thought isn't something that belongs specifically to me. Otherwise, it couldn't be a grounds for anything objective. Exactly. It's almost warning you against a sort of ad hominem reaction. That's exactly You know, listen not to to me, but to my words or what I'm saying or my argument. But then to the extent that an argument has force, it ceases simply to be my argument. It's an argument in general. It can't be simply mine. It has to be yours as well. Or in other words, as you pointed out, it has to be something in common for it to actually have force. Yeah, and you can see immediately how those who weren't hearing his argument or hearing him speak might say quite reasonably, that's what you say, that you are reporting the reason of reasons. But what we hear is you, Heraclitus, talking. So it's your opinion. And I can't imagine an argument that's more in the nature of our arguments than those. Mm -hmm. You know, one person claims to speak the truth, another person claims it's your truth you're speaking. Well, mm. this is, seems to me a very early example of someone who wasn't going to pull any punches about it. I'm speaking, yeah. but that's not what you're supposed to hear. You're supposed to hear the way it is. And why? Because I've heard it. And of course, I didn't make it up. It came to me. Part of that is that he's also claiming that it's accessible to everybody. It's not his diamond. It's not his personal voice in his head. Yeah, see, that's an interesting contrast with Socrates, in that Socrates says he has to follow his diamond, but it only speaks to him. That is D-A-I-M-O-N, demon. Yeah, it only says (laughs) negative things. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've puzzled a lot about what that diamond is, and I, I think it's very much what one might call a conscience. Sure. Yeah. And a conscience is personal. It says you in particular should be doing this. But that's not what Heraclitus is saying that you should listen to. When he's listening, when he's using the word logos and you have to listen to it, he's speaking of somehow listening to the world speaking. Yeah. And I think he hears the world speaking in two kinds of logos. One is the mathematical relations. And there, there's something very modern about that, that all things are transformable into each other, that a piece of earth transformed into a jug of water, no matter how large or how small the piece of earth or the jug is, the ratio of relations remain the same. That's just, I think it's the insight of someone who was made to be a scientist. But then there's another relation that he sees in the world, which is that of the metaphor, that things are to each other in relations that are not mathematical, but that are qualitative. And he thinks that that is also Logos that speaks to him. So he's not only interested in the deep mathematical constitution of nature, he's also interested in the phenomenal character, where things really are qualitatively different. So it seems to me that the Logos is double-sided for him. 
And it's also, there are points here, you know, your section on the wise thing. It also seems to be something like a divine presence or something like someone might want to call God. His language is suggestive of that. So what I sometimes call to myself, the super logos, although Heraclitus wants to prevent us from giving it a specific God's name, though people call it Zeus, he does think not only that it is at work, but he thinks it's wisely at work. And I think there's something that has to do with his temperament and that he blames Homer, of all people, Homer who wrote an epic which is gory fighting for pages and pages. He blames him for being too conciliatory. He wants the world to be antagonistic. And I have a feeling that there was something about antagonism that really appealed to him. And I imagine that was personally hard to get along with. <laughs> but I don't know that. I think he really thought that vitality was in battle. He has the fragment in which he, he says, if you harmonize everything, then everything goes away. It just becomes flat. There's no real world anymore. So there is a sense here that antagonisms, antitheses, oppositions are what keep the world vital. And there's a certain truth in that, it seems to me. Yeah, I think we if we think of modern physics. What I think of here is the if there were only attractive forces in the universe, everything would just collapse into indiscriminate, let's say, I don't know yeah, if it would be a black chaos, hole yeah. or, you know, it's this balance between there needs to be a certain amount of repulsive forces at some level, I take it at the subatomic level, for things to maintain some sort of articulation, right? There's yeah, to, to be can't... articulated means it can't just be one big indiscriminate soup. Things that's have to be exactly stand out yeah. from each other. Yeah. Yeah. What echoed for me in talking about war, Ava, in your book was thinking about what we learned when we were studying the classical Greek poetry and histories and talking about strife and eros as being motivating forces. I thought more that and this, to me, positions Heraclitus against Parmenides is the idea that without something like war, strife, or tension, you end up with something that's just not chaotic, but static. That's what I think of when you say flat. Yeah, something blankly unified. Yeah, exactly. And I imagine, it seems to me not possible that these two people ever met each other, talked to each other. But imagine that if they did, this is what Heraclitus would have said to Parmenides, Look, we're both about the same thing, which is to find what makes things one and how manyness comes about. That is to say, how in the world, on the one hand, the world has a certain unity, and on the other hand, it has infinite variety, how these are related to each other. You say that only what is unqualified being could be said to be, and that everything else is simply appearance. Well, to begin with, appearance is also something, I think Heraclitus would say, and it's an appearance that the world becomes a world, and being is just a great blank nothing, as far as I can understand it. He might have said to Parmenides, what is this being that I'm not allowed to say anything about? I'm not allowed to qualify it in any way. It doesn't move. It doesn't have coloration. It doesn't smell like anything. Heraclitus had great faith in what you see and hear, particularly in what you see, because the hearing is internal. 
at least the way he presents it. He would have said to Parmenides, being as flabby, being as unappealing to me. I'm making this up, of course. I have no idea what they would have said to each other. <laughs> yeah, I wish there were a fragment with the word flabby in it. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so Parmenides and Heraclitus would have been not good friends necessarily, but they would have been very good frenemies, yeah. which yeah, I think frenemies, is appropriate think to it. Heraclitean way of looking at things, yeah. It's not yeah. clear to me, and all this, you know, speculation that Heraclitus was friends with anybody. There's stories, I've read fictions in which Heraclitus receives visitors and he's nice to them. I can't mm-hmm. ever imagine that. We're told at one point he actually went off to the mountains to be by himself, and the king of Persia invited him and he wouldn't go. The most telling part of this is. People wanted to be his followers. They were called Heraclitus mongers, and sometimes just Heraclitians. Well, it's so clear that if he had heard what they were saying and what they were making of him, he'd have rolled over in his grave, because there was something about him which was, oddly enough, highly particular, highly personal. This is one of the things that attracts me to him. He's, I think, the first philosopher who tried to explain what makes the world one world and also a world of many constituents on the one hand. And on the other hand, there's something so personal about him. He's kind of hard to get along with, pessimistic, harsh. You know, when he says oh, that Ephesians, his uh, fellow citizens, all the Ephesians should go hang themselves and let the kids take <laughs> over. Yeah. So it's oddly interesting, but it doesn't go anywhere because none of us have the faintest idea what it's actually like personally. But that's the way I imagine it. Thanks for listening to this episode preview. You can purchase a full episode at our store page, get it by supporting us through Patreon, or become a partially examined life citizen. We provide supporters with ad-free access to our full catalog, including new exclusive content. Configure our citizen feed to get it all beamed straight to your Apple or Android device. Learn more at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support.